Welcome, 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 welcome everybody into the third official episode of the Bell Ringer podcast host, uh, hosted by Sixers Wire of USA Today Sports Media Group. I am your host, Kai Carlin, the editor of the Sixers Wire site. I have my co-host with me, Cameron Fields. Cam, how are you today? Pretty good. How are you doing, Kai? I'm feeling good, man, because I'm so excited to uh, have this guest on today. So actually our first official guest here of the podcast. His name is Yaron Weitzman of Bleacher Report. He wrote this really excellent, excellent tell-all book of the, of the, uh, the process. It's called Tanking to the Top. If you haven't uh, checked it out, I really, really do uh, suggest that you do. So w- without further ado, let me introduce him. Yaron, what's going on, man? I'm good. How are you guys? Good, man. Pretty We're good. good. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your day to come on with us, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Also, give me a break from uh, so my kids' nap time. So that's good. This is a good way to spend it. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Nap time. I like that. Put <laughs> <laughs> the kids to bed, have, and then uh, come on and talk a little hoops with us. We definitely appreciate it. Self quarantine life, baby. That's how it is. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Goodness. Listen, we we hear that. Um, all right. So I, really, I just want to di- dive right into this book, man. I mean, like this book, I actually just finished it yesterday. So I, I mean, from beginning to end, that this whole thing is a page turner. I really just wanted to ask you, like, what inspired you to be like, you know what, I'm going to write about a book about the process. What inspired this? Um, so I get asked this and my answer is always, I feel like a disappointment. You guys can tell me if it's not, but you know, so I covered <laughs> the NBA for Bleach Report. Um, you know, a quote unquote national writer that sounds more fancy than it is, but just means my job is to find stories that a national audience would find interesting. Right. Um, to do that, you have to leave New York often because the Knicks aren't doing it. So around oh, 20, yeah. around 2017, 2018, I started during, I guess, 2017, right. I started heading down to Philly a little bit um, to just write about them, be around them, figure, you know, that was, that was kind of the first year i don't know there's so many different phases you could divide like the process into right but that was sort of the next one where like oh they're a good team now ben's on the court joel's playing the whole season um stuff like that right so i started going showing up there and then covered them you know wrote a couple stories and then excuse me covered them throughout the playoff run and at the end i kind of figured or toward the end i remember being on the amtrak back to new york i don't remember if it was during the playoffs or after and being like oh um feel like there's a good book here you know which is funny because i didn't even they're obviously i shouldn't say they're obviously i believe there is and there was right um but i didn't really know anything like i thought i knew stuff and i didn't know anything about some of the stuff that had gone on (laughs) wasn't holding so much i mean like in process lore if you want to call it like how many times joel Embiid had torn his whatever part in his knee and like there'd be like a weird medical update like i i I hadn't been on top of all that stuff right um right so you know so I, i come up with a proposal and kind of originally positioned it like you know i write this in the prologue but i kind of positioned it as like i thought i was going to be writing you know an nba version of moneyball and uh i do a proposal and if you look back at the proposal i submitted um you would see that it resembles it does not resemble a book at all um i think it's a good thing but maybe not Um, yeah that's definitely a good thing yeah it means you get to learn some new things right so it ended up being like i don't know i got more into the i'll call it the drama like the uh the uh i call it shenanigans can i curse on here i mean i can say is that fine or no 
Oh, yeah, you can curse. Like the well. bullshit around the Sixers. I call shenanigans sometimes too, right? I like that word. But like all the drama and the backroom stuff, it just kind of like to think a bit of a, it's like a book about how the NBA works. That's kind of what I realized toward, you know, as early on actually in the process, as I was hitting some reporting things, um, realized, oh, there's a lot of interesting narrative type stuff here and it's a lot of fun to dive into. So I don't know if that, I guess that kind of answered your question, but it was more, it was kind of like reverse engineering a book idea and then being happy to find out, oh, there's actually something better even here. Not to be honest with you, that that actually just answered everything. Like, like that actually covers all the bases. Now, I've only been covering this team. This is actually kind of like my first year as kind of like a full season credentialed member yeah. covering this team. So you actually uncovered a, a lot of things that I didn't even know uh, when I really covered this team, the, the Sixers part time last two years, like, like, like diving into, for example, the Markel Fultz thing. Right. I had no, I had no idea that his mother was as hands on as she is. And, and honestly, like that was probably my, my favorite chapter of, of this book. That's kind of really diving into how hands on he was and his relationship with uh, with Williams and how upset Mark Eversley was when, you know, Markel's kind of goofing off and everything. I, I really wanted to get your thoughts, like as you're writing this chapter about Markel, like what you thought of, of everything you were really writing about. And in terms of Markel, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, that one I knew. So a couple of things like that one, I knew I hit some stuff, right? I was, you know, there's sometimes you get in and you're like, oh, I, I got something here, right? Like I, I got some different things. And like, obviously the Markel story is one. Of, it's funny. I guess it is, right? I was going to say it's it's one of the more interesting ones of the process. You could even argue it's not part of the process because it was post-Hinky, right? But whatever, this whole Sixers era you know let's link it all together right um for sure and i knew that was one of, i mean that's one of those stranger ones that and burner gate are probably the two weirdest ones right there were a few <laughs> there were a few things i was hoping to get the bottom of right yeah. it was that it was burner gate it was some of what um what happened like what what the actual order of operations were for sam getting ousted right those were kind of three of my big things like oh, i would love to like crack these mysteries here um so the Markel thing yeah the Markel thing i did and it's funny so i, I did this i did a q a with my friend um Shout out to Mike Vorkanov. They do this newsletter called The 30. It's a journalism newsletter. And he asked me about this. Um, and he helped. He knew the Markel. Like he was one of my friends who he covers the Knicks for The Athletic. And he knew he was sort of doing some editing with me um, about helping me out the book as I was getting my stuff. And he knew that was one of my better chapters. Or no, I shouldn't say better. One of the stronger in terms of the reporting and like compared to also what had been publicly known before. Right. Um, and like he asked me about how I got that stuff. And the funny part is, so some of it, I'm not really sure. Like some of it might have been luck. I don't know. Like a, the foundation of that chapter is based off a long interview I did with Markel's um, former high school coach. But that doesn't even do it justice. Like mentor, fatherly figure, this guy named Keith Williams, um, who's been pushed out of the picture since then. And, you know, and so when I always say like the foundation, it doesn't mean I took everything he said and just ran with it. Right. Like you, you right. check it, you verify, you, you know, stuff like that. So like you can, you know, some people would say he might be aggrieved. I don't know if I would agree, but whatever. It's not the point. Right. But like I met him for about three hours in Baltimore um, on the record. And like I didn't know him before. Um, other people I tried reaching out to him, I think like he's not like a hidden figure in the whole thing. Like if you're doing a story on Markel Fultz, he'd be one of the first calls you try to make. Um why he opened up to me like maybe it was something that i did well maybe like i was good the way i positioned it or maybe he cared maybe the idea of being a book mattered you know some people like take that seriously the idea that this is you know the internet is kind of like you know in and out and changes every day um a book is more permanent right so maybe that mattered maybe 
I don't know. Maybe other people hadn't given him the right. Whatever it was, I honestly I do not know. But something about it, like he was open and he opened up with me and gave me a lot of um, background, a lot of details, a lot of context, a lot of straight stuff. That then, so then you take that and that kind of combine that with some of like some of the sources I had, you know, developed. Um, I'll say NBA sources, right? Not even necessarily Sixers, but like some of the sources I had developed decent relationships with um, had some stuff on there too. And like the, co- the combination there and it kind of like gave me a foundation to go off where I was able to um, go into more, right? So the stuff about his mom, right? Like it doesn't, and I'm always wary about, for one, I'm wary because Markel and his camp have been extremely clear that they refuse to acknowledge anything that, they refuse to even, to even entertain the possibility that anything has happened here other than in a shoulder injury, right? Kai, would you, would you agree with that, like, when I say that? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Right, so, so, I'm, so I always try to be careful about when I say, well, it's not that, like, his mom's crazy, therefore, therefore he went crazy, right? Like, that's not what I'm saying. I know you're not saying that. That's not, you know, but just the idea of lending some context to what was going on in his life. So, like, one of the stories I have, which, you know, I guess I'll share it for people who haven't read yet, you know, is, like, him and his best friend who was his manager like and the mom and him basically got into an argument over like how he was distributing flyers about the neighbors passing the neighbors leaving chick-fil-a on his doorstep which it's not like i'm making yeah. it up right so everyone knew markel Fultz loved chick-fil-a the neighbors found out because i guess he tweeted i don't know whatever the way people find out about this stuff neighbors were leaving chick-fil-a she wasn't happy because she thought it was like invading their privacy he wrote up some flyers she didn't like how the flyers were written up um that was like a straw that broke the camel's back type thing in terms of like her frustration with the manager who was also his best friend. She basically tells Markel choose between him or me. Markel chooses his mother, obviously. Um, I guess I shouldn't say obviously, but does. And like, you know, the next night is at dinner and runs out crying and telling Keith Williams, the high school coach, you should have left me in college. The money did this to us. Right. So just an example of like stuff, like stuff that was going on in his life. That is like, you know, it just, again, you don't, I don't know. A plus B could have nothing. I don't know that a leads to B. It could have nothing to do with anything, but I guess that like a big part of the book was just trying to provide context to who these people are and like what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And and honestly, like when I got to that point, I actually have, have the page open, like, like, like right now, like of the neighbors leaving, uh, chick-fil-a and everything and and just like wow i I mean i can't really say anything because i I have a a mother who's a a little hands-on i can't (laughs) so i totally get it (laughs) 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 i totally get it my moms just really want want the best uh for for their kids and you know like it's kind of unfortunate uh how things worked out i mean it's honestly just a crazy thing the idea of just you know throwing flyers and neighbors mailboxes saying hey don't leave chick-fil-a for my kid right and like with him i think and then right the other part which i had known but you forget like that he went from like within two and a half years from like jv basketball to a number one pick is a crazy leap that's like you know i compare him to simmons where simmons was sort of groomed to be a star number one pick for years right like he'd grown up in the spotlight he was ready the Fultz family and i say family in quotes meaning like the circle right i don't think they were which again like most people probably wouldn't, right? That's a crazy being like it's celebrity. It's you have to think of it as like the celebrity spotlight now, right? It's not just being an unborn pick. You're in the celebrity spotlight. That we've seen what that does to people. It's difficult. Um, and I don't think it happened so fast to them and so quickly. I think I think it through. I don't. I don't think they were prepared. No, I mean, I, I'd have to agree with you just just because of my experience being around Markel over the last couple of years, and and then re- reading more into this book, and and just like you could totally tell 
that the rise was just really too quick for him and he really couldn't handle it. And it, it's unfortunate. And, and, and that's why I, I'm, I'm really happy for him for what he's doing in Orlando, just for the fact that Orlando doesn't really have the same type of pressure in Philadelphia and he can kind of develop on his own. And I, I feel, I feel like, like that's a really good thing for him um, in terms of his development. Yeah, I would agree. It's funny. Cause I also, Sometimes I feel like a jerk on this stuff because I also push back. Like he, he still can't shoot, right? Not to just be blunt about it. Yeah, he still um, can. <laughs> so, sorry about that, guys. Um, he, yeah, he still can't shoot. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's and it's weird and like and again he he's like he he acts a lot, and like I feel like a jerk because I don't want to be the guy. Like I'm very happy that Markel Fultz is on a court and playing. Right, I wish him nothing ill, but I also think from a journalistic standpoint, it's still we've kind of all given a pass because he has a triple double once every 20 days you know where it's like oh he's all the way back and everything's great and he changed everything and he's still i don't know it's still one of the stranger stories and we still don't have a really good answer as to what happened right and which is there so there's two different levels like being on the court is one thing um he's still like we have a guy who was a i think a 40 percent shooter in college like and he had like a really good pull up three and like that that part of his game is just gone yeah i mean for sure just it is this isn't really the kid that we really saw in college and i really think we're really um, killed and anything between Markel and uh, the Sixers organization. Um, I believe it was early last year when his camp, I believe, told uh, the Sixers that, hey, he was going to go see a doctor in New York about the shoulder. And uh, apparently this kind of did it behind Elton's back. And I remember practice yeah. that day, Elton came out and he spoke. And the look on Elton's right. face was like, I'm so totally done with this. Yeah, I, it's funny because <laughs> I like to write. So I, I've been doing a lot of these type of interviews, right? And I find this with a lot of um, a lot of the topics, whether it's like about Brett and Ben Simmons, whatever it is. Like, I'm like, I always say, I can tell you what I know, what I found out, right? But also, right. like, if you just open your eyes or listen, like, you guys can see the same thing. Like, that was an example, right? Like, it's very clear from that press conference the Sixers did not agree with, like, the road Markel Fultz was taking or how he and his team were acting, right? In terms of, so it doesn't mean, I'm not saying they're right. Like, that does, that's a separate thing. But it's very clear that they were not, you know, if you were to say shoulder injury automatically, we found it. Like, that was clear. Elton Brand, when he came out that day, was not saying, oh, I'm so happy we have a great diagnosis that we all agree with and we can move on from here, right? And, like, move forward. Like, that was not what was happening there. So, like, yeah, no, I agree with you. I remember that press conference. And Elton, that was where him being, like, I think, like, the newer guy and a former player, like, you can just see all that coming through. Like, I'm not here for this bullshit. Like, <laughs> it was, it was a, yeah, it was. And, like, I'm done with I'm done with the niceties. Like, it doesn't, like, I don't really care anymore. Yeah, like, like I remember even Elton coming out and, like, the look yeah. on his face. He just, he, he, he wasn't having it. So, I feel like it was kind of at that point. And I remember turning to a colleague of mine, and I, I remember saying – Markel's yep. done here. Like he definitely has played his last yeah, game no, here. For sure, for sure, which I think was the goal, right? From the uh, from the team faults side, I, I'm guessing. You know. Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, especially when Brett kind of began turning more towards maybe TJ yep. McConnell backing up Ben Simmons rather than Markel. I know the camp had a little bit of issue with that. For as sure, well. for sure, right? That was a big part of it, right? And I mean, and like again, you know, as you you know, I'm plenty critical of the Sixers. Um, and some of the stuff with Markel, they probably didn't, they did not probably, they didn't handle great. Though, again, it's hard to say, like, I don't know how much he was helping them. And helping is the wrong word. Like, I don't know how much he was meeting them, right? But, um, but no, but, like, they, they they tried starting him and then, you know, doing a bullshit move. Or, like, new, like he's in the starting lineup. And then JJ yeah. comes down in a second. Like, all this weird stuff. And it was just like, it was, yeah, it was just not happening. Yeah, it was strange. Kind of the beginning of the beginning of last season when Brett did decide to turn to Martell and uh, you know in the starting lineup, 
and, and I feel like it was kind of like a, a just to really give the kid a fair shake. But at the same time, like he did not fit in that starting lineup with Ben, considering the fact that neither of them are shooters. The floor wasn't spaced and it really didn't give either guy a really chance to um, really flourish sure. or succeed. And that's and that's why Brett was like, holy shit, I got turned to JJ. In the yep, no, half. for sure. For sure. Yeah, it was it was definitely just, just a strange, strange situation. Um, and then Lee, speaking of strange situations, I guess we'll just kind of go into Burnley Gate. Why not? <laughs> so, uh, that I mean, was a time. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I mean, that, yeah, you want to talk about something that, that was absolutely insane. Uh, again, like, what's your thoughts, like, like as you're learning, like, like all of this stuff, you know, in real time, and as you're writing it down, like, you're really writing about a guy using burner accounts to criticize his own team and to stick up for himself and to criticize Sam. Yeah, you know stuff. what's funny? So the burner gate, like, and I say this isn't a good way to sell a book. Like, I didn't get a ton of different stuff there, right? Uh, right. I got to see that. Well, first of all, my my big thing, the biggest, like, writing that chapter was one of the weirdest things ever because when you're collecting all of it and trying to synthesize it into, like, coherent sentences, paragraphs, pages, you know, just summarize it and you're rereading it and it's like, what am, what is this? Like, what am I... What am right. I? What am I reading? What am I like? What, like, what am what I? These names like I have to like explain to like fact checkers like how uncone sources is like no the typo was on his end not mine leave that please like it, it's not unknown sources like leave an uncone or like still balling like we're deciding like do we capitalize that do we not do we do the at signs do we call it Twitter heck all this ridiculousness <laughs> just so there was that um yeah going through like one of the yeah so one of the few details like. I didn't. I did not speak to Brian, right? Which will not surprise anyone. Um, one of the, yeah, not one of the sure. details I had was like the way Brian found out about the story. Not found out, excuse me. They knew it was like they, you know, the ringer, which the ringer wrote in that story, right? Had reached out and like, you know, they were in touch a little bit. Um, but basically, when the story went live, Brian was in a, I think it was an LA gym scouting somebody, and uh, and uh, colleagues could see like, you know, the ringer had back then had that green background, like a very um, distinct and noticeable green background. And colleagues could see, like, on his phone, the green background. He was clearly scrolling through the story. And then him getting up and walking out. Um, which is just, just, it's just like, a, just think about that. Also, think about, like, I guess he didn't think it would be that bad. I don't know. If I knew, like, he knew something was coming down, and yet he was still out with his colleagues, right? Like, out scouting. Like, it's interesting. It's just really interesting. Um, the thing that I found most about that is just how telling... It was, you know, going back and doing some of the research about Brian and talking to people about Brian, it became very obvious. And like, yeah, in hindsight, we say, no, duh. But like, he cared what people think, what people think. And he always did. Um, and he was always aware. Like, I found this great quote from like a 1980, whatever, or something article um, um, about like Brian working for Jerry and Brian basically saying, you know, I'm aware of the nepotism charge. Um, it's something that bothers me, right? And like that was something he'd been fighting his whole life, and you see that, like, oh, that that makes sense. How well, not makes sense because that's too strong because none of that made sense. But like that, how we get from somebody who's you know always been in his father's shadow and feeling like he has to fight against the accusation that he's only here because of who his daddy is, right? And going against that his right. entire life feels like he's been railroaded everywhere, you know, including Toronto, where like I had a person say, you know, Brian was always saying how the Bargnani pick wasn't as bad as people say, like things like that. Um, he just was always fighting against him. Then you drop him in literally the worst situation for somebody like that, where again, it's his dad. Again, he's replacing this guy who has a cult following who people, you know, don't want to have replaced. And you got to show, and who's in the middle of this massive rebuild, like where his handprints all are 
are all over it and like his shadow was looming over the franchise and like that that's what you drop this guy into like yeah it's kind of I mean, no one, not that, not that the burner gate type thing was inevitable, but just as it does explain, okay, this is how we got here. Yeah. Like the whole thing was just, just wow. I mean, as you mentioned, Brian, I know he dealt with a lot of nepotism just because of everything went on in Phoenix. And and then you mentioned Turbano and I'm reading, you know, what's going on uh, in Philadelphia. Obviously they brought Jerry in. And and to be honest with you, they kind of pushed, and I don't know if you agree with me, but they did kind of push Sam out. Like, like would yeah, you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Exactly. So then Brian comes in, and he's in. It just it continues the, the nepotism scream and everything else. And then you get caught with this, uh, you know, the burner gate. And is that really what happened? Like, did it come down to like his wife, like managing all these accounts and just trying and... <laughs> to really? I don't like. I I don't know. I I didn't get any. I have no. And I'm not just saying this. I have nothing different on that than anyone else does in terms of, uh, right? Who was managing it? My joke I use is that you know. Whoever was using those accounts clearly knew a lot about the Sixers inner workings, right? Um, so if that was his wife, then like, God bless Brian because his wife listened to his work grouse, uh, griping a lot more than my wife listens to mine, right? Like, so, <laughs> clearly, so so God, if that's the case, then God bless. <laughs> Yo, I mean seriously, because I mean you you, you know when you go home, I mean I I have a girlfriend too, so like like my girlfriend tunes me out, but like maybe about maybe five. And if you mention Sixers, so. she doesn't want to hear anything about that, probably right. Like if I mention like Sixers, like the process again, my wife rolls her eyes, right? Like that's it gets, I've been talking about that for a year or two years, whatever it is, right? Like so, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like 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 I'll come home and, and I'll be and I'll be like, oh, babe, Ben Simmons gives me three <laughs> words every time I ask her a question. <laughs> <laughs> And again, she rolls her eyes at me. She goes, she goes, I don't. Right, so I don't. Right, so she. So if you were, if like, if somebody was to tweet at like Keith Pompey, like you suck or whatever, right? Like, and I like, give specific examples. Like, I don't think your wife would have the details to do it, right? That's the thing. Like, <laughs> it, it, exactly, exactly. So, so like, like, like that. That's the thing that like really boggled my mind. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, did she really listen to him, or is she just out here being a ride or die girl, or wife or whatever, and just kind of protecting him? I don't know. I'm confused. Like this whole thing yeah, was wild. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, yeah de- definitely for sure. All right. Now, m- moving on, there's one other topic I really wanted to kind of get sure. into with you was ah. Jimmy Butler. Yeah, everybody's favorite. Yeah. Now, we all heard Jimmy's podcast, um, his guest appearance on JJ Reddick's podcast uh, last week. And and Jimmy pretty much just threw <laughs> yeah. Brett yeah, under the bus, basically. <laughs> like, he just came out and pretty much just trashed Brett. Now, I had a feeling that it was something something going on between Jimmy and Brett, and it started when Miami made their first trip here. Back right. Okay. November. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish, and I'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because uh, pre and you know pregame presser, Brett comes out and um, he was he was asked, "Hey, what are your thoughts on Jimmy?" And Brett pretty much just said, "I'm I, right. I want to talk about the Heat, not Jimmy." And like, and then, and then somebody else said, Hey, I mean, Jimmy said this, he goes, yeah, I don't care. And I, I knew kind of at that point, I was like, okay, yeah, this was definitely something about Brett. This wasn't necessarily better. For sure. I mean, like it's, I agree, you know, this again, I go back to what I said before. Right. I can tell you like the things I found and reporting and all that. Right. Like easily, but like all you had to do was listen to what Brett Brown said in that press conference to know what the actual feelings were. Right. Like, I, so again, when Jimmy goes into the details, yeah, it's kind of jarring and interesting to hear, but it shouldn't be a surprise when Brett Brown, like 
99.9, we'll say 99.7. How about that? 99.7% of the time, a coach <laughs> in that situation talks about, oh, I'm really happy for him. You know, we're moved on, but he, you know, he's in a great situation now. We're happy. We loved our time together. You know, we were happy with everything we did, happy he got whatever, you know, all that, all those platitudes. It's very easy, right? Brett, and Brett didn't say that. Right. <laughs> yeah, Brett wasn't even about it. Brett was like, I'm, I'm, I don't want to talk about him. The only time I ever heard Brett um, really praise Jimmy was uh, when I was down in Miami and it was for their game against the Heat. And um, Brett said something about how, oh, he's leading the Heat. He's doing a terrific job. And uh, right, we exactly, wish well, that's exactly. it. And then it, it, it was kind of like, it, it, like, it was like, okay, I'm going to give Jimmy his praise, but like, I really do not want to no, talk about exactly, him at all. Exactly. So it's like, and again, that that's different. Usually, people you know pay lip service, whether it's whether it's um, honest or not, right? That was not the case. So yeah, Brett and Jimmy did not get along. You know, Brett is non-confrontational. Jimmy is both non-confrontational and confrontational. I don't know. Jimmy's Jimmy. Um, um, yeah. No, but they did not. They did not like. Or I shouldn't even say. I feel like saying they didn't see eye to eye is better than didn't get along, right? Because I don't like. There wasn't. I know there was the Portland thing, which, again, most people will say, you know, it was reported. I think even Brett would agree. I don't know. I think it got reported in a way that, like, it wasn't like they were screaming at each other. It seems like everyone who was there says, okay, maybe it was a little something, but it wasn't like Jimmy was standing up and saying to Brett, fuck you. You don't know what you're doing. You feel like that, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there were even other things like that. Maybe there were, right? I'm honestly not sure. But, no, they, def- they definitely did not see eye to eye. Um, though again, in the end, Brett put the ball in Jimmy's hands because he was like, now is the right thing, which I guess, honestly, I'll say, like, I found, and I know Jimmy was critical of Brett about this on the sh- podcast. Um, I found that to be, um, I don't know, I found like that's a positive for Brett. I think that's something that he should be applauded for. One, making an adjustment, which is what you're supposed to do, adjusting something like, you know, again, a little weird. You could fight, like, but their whole offense was always passes king, passes king. Okay, now we're not going to do that. Which again, it was a little abrupt, um, and I think right. there you can talk about that a little bit. You can pick at that, and then also somebody who he, um, who he clearly was didn't love. He like was able to put that to the side and be like, you know what, our best chance is the ball in Jimmy's hands. So, yeah, and that was always kind of like my biggest criticism of Brett over the last few years was his lack of adjustments. So, and, and you know, and, and going into the playoffs and putting the ball in Jimmy's hands more, I thought was you know the correct move. But Jimmy, I guess he, he said he was critical of the way Brett did it because I guess Jimmy brought it up all throughout the season and Brett kept telling him no. And then randomly during the playoffs against Toronto, uh, Brett was like, okay, yeah, Jimmy no, I'd be curious. Hey, here's an article idea, right? But I'd be curious, like, to actually look at the numbers of pick and rolls that they ran throughout the year, right? Like, was it actually like maybe it was gradual, right? Maybe it was a gradual progression that we didn't, that, and, Jimmy's wrong. I'd be curious to know how that actually worked, right? Like maybe it was gradual, gradual. And you know what? In the fourth quarter, they were actually running X number, and that was you know fifty percent more than they had. And in the playoffs, they just ramped it up a little more. Um, yeah, I don't know about that. I know I agree. To me, I remember thinking it was weird. I actually think I asked Brett about this. It was one of those times where he he got not he gave me like a short answer. It was like I'm gonna I'm gonna mess I'm gonna butcher it a little bit. But when when he came. When they trade for Jimmy, and then he shows up in Orlando, right? And when Brett was finally allowed to talk about him, because I remember it took a few days for the trade to go through. Um, and Brett was allowed to talk yeah. about him, and he kept he brought up, you know, when it's 95-95, I think that's what he said. I think he always says 95-95. I think that's 
right? Yeah, it's, he he's got to adjust. That, that was a 1992 <laughs> score, right? Now, now it should be like when it's 120, 120. But when it's when it's 95, exactly. 95, and there's four minutes left, and you know, you know, we know pretty much pick and rolls are what you need and stuff like that. I forget exactly how he phrased it, and he pretty much said something along the lines is that we learned in the playoffs the year before, meaning against Boston, that like the whole the 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 old system, the passes king system is has its weaknesses doesn't necessarily work and he phrased it in a way that i thought was weird i remember asking him about that like either there the next day saying like you said this so i I forget one he said i never said that but he did say that like it was something he said um because it was very weird like if you read stories about the sixers let's say during the rebuild right 2015 2014 15 16 it was always we want to work on a system and install a system that will be our system even when we're good. Like, that's the whole thing, right? We're going to do a move-the-ball type of system. And Brett, does, Brett believes in that. He doesn't want to run a lot of pick-and-rolls and stuff like that. And yet For they sure. moved away from that pretty yeah. quickly once they got a good team, right? Like, in crunch time. It was strange. So there's one way you could say, again, you could say that's, you know, that's a good job. You recognize your the limitations. But it was also, I don't know, it was, it was very it, – it, there was an abruptness to it, whether the numbers – states or not if that makes sense it does it, it makes a lot of sense now there are two things two more things i kind of wanted to touch on um but before sure. we before we kind of wrap everything up i wanted i want to get your opinion do you think like with this group right now now obviously with with the uh, season in suspension you know we can't really kind of give like a real a- answer to this and until we see until we see more but with this group right now, do you think Brett's the right guy Ooh, for this group? Uh, that's a good question. I don't like doing the uh, guy, like, let's fire the coach thing. Um, uh, it's, I think it's fair to say that the time, you know, he, his voice has maybe grown stale. I think that might be fair to say. Um, here, I'll answer it this way, right? It How about is. this? I'll answer it this way, right? Because, again, I don't – I find I'm not good enough on the X and O's. I don't know enough about that. I can't say on that stuff. Um I like. I'll go back to the uh, tell Ben's brother and uh, agent. I want to see a three every game, right? And and then not seeing and not seeing oh, a three since, was... right? So to me, you know, that showed one that he felt he he felt the need to pull a gambit like that, right? There was some desperation in, when you do that in terms of you're not getting through to him is what it tells me, right? If otherwise, why would you say that publicly? Because also, mm-hmm. if you say that, you know, there's a chance that what has happened happens where he literally does not take a three since you say that. Um, and it kind of right. shows a bit of, I don't know, is impotence a stronger word? Like, I think that, I just think that tells you a lot about where he is, um, where his voice is in the locker room. Right. And you have other stuff popping up. I won't even say, I mean the Jimmy stuff, but okay. So if you want to be the mount the counter, like, you know, taking Jimmy Butler's words on like, which coaches are good or not, is not like that. We'd be out of a lot of coaches. Right. Um, but like give the Glenn Robinson thing, which again, maybe it was on Glenn Robinson, right? But just these these examples are popping up more frequently, right? Where people just seem a little confused. Not that Glenn Robinson has any right to to complain about his role, right? Like you were scoring fifteen points on a team that, you know, clearly didn't feel like you were worth keeping around. Um but just exactly. it just little those things start mounting, you know. Yeah, because I I will say this, like going back to to the couple of different things when when brett said you know i want a three and and yeah he hasn't he hasn't taken one real three since and then i'm not sure when it was i remember it was like a couple weeks later brett admitted hey i failed like 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 when i said that i failed he hasn't taken a three since so like, like that's definitely a little disappointing and then 
this whole issue with the zone and, and like I understand zone defenses can definitely throw a team off and you know it's not played in the NBA as much anymore but you like it's really confusing to me how a team can't beat a two three zone and uh it was in Miami when they lost by 31 and the heat just kind of blew them out and I asked Brett after that game down there I said hey Joel only took four shots in the second half what happened and he looked at me and he was like, we can't beat a zone. He didn't say that, but yeah, that's basically so what he and said. So it's like a helplessness there you feel sometimes, right? Maybe that's a good word with him. You feel, you can feel that he feels it a little bit, um, which again, he's lasted a long time. Like, I, I don't know. What are the um, most tenured head coaches? Like, where does he rank? If you, if you were, is he, I assume he's like top 10. Not very, Not very high. You're saying, you're saying that a lot of people have had yeah. more, have been with their current teams more than him. I would say no. Like, I would say. Well, well, like in, among current coaches, it'd be like Pop, um, Spo, um, Brad Stevens. I think is around the right, same yeah. time as Brett Brown, but definitely Pop. But definitely Pop and right, Spo are, that, are right? ahead of him. Is and then Doc, Doc Rivers he was with the Clippers too. before? I feel like, but he's at the he's at the top end, isn't he? He's been, I guess the thing. What else? He's been there for a while, right? Like he's outlasted. He's been with his team longer than right. most head coaches last, and he's made it through past where most head coaches do like the Kenny Atkinson's the example I keep pointing back to as the guy who comes in, in that situation and usually um, does not last. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, here, I'll say it like this also. I'd be surprised. Well, again, now it's all fascinating. I don't know how anybody, you know, um, makes any assesses anything now, but just before this nonsense that swept over the country, this, uh, before the pandemic, before the pandemic, yeah. I, um, I think it was yeah. fair to say that if, you know, you know, if you were a betting man, you'd bet on him not coming back. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I honestly, like, I kind of had a feeling uh, the Miami game in February that I, I just mentioned earlier. This, the reaction that's from Brett and other players, and I was kind of looking around, and then you know they, they lose by thirty-one to the Heat. It, it just you know it, it, a little inexcusable, um, and, and it just like I kind of told myself i don't think brett's really going to be back next year unless something really changes like he has to have a deep yeah. playoff run you know to yeah. basically save his job um and then there was one more th- one, one more thing man um obviously tanking is kind of like it, it, it's it's basically a yeah. four-letter word around the league like like just a lot of people are just really not a big fan of it now how come how come it could work in philadelphia but not, but but maybe not a team like say Charlotte or Detroit, like teams like that who should probably probably go into a full fledged tank. Well, what do you mean? Okay, so what do you mean works? Can't. Like, what do you mean can't? Because I don't necessarily disagree, but I'm curious what you're saying. Because the way I see it is like like um, you know owners are out here. You know, like most of the time they're thinking bottom line, they're thinking about money and, and things like that. And and sometimes a tank job can really drive fans away. But in Philadelphia, it didn't because mm-hmm. of, say, how passionate the fans are here and everything. They love their team no matter what. Um, I, I'm from Michigan. Like, like, I grew up in Michigan, and, and, and you know, like, I kind of grew up a Piston fan before, I moved my, before, you know, I moved out here and got my job and everything. Now, I, I have friends out there who are just kind of sick of the Pistons. They think the Pistons are stale and things like that. And then I asked them, okay, what if the Pistons went into a tank, like a full-fledged tank? They're like, oh, no, I would never. See, I think they're back. lying. Not lying. I think they're I think they're just not being honest with themselves, right? Um, right, the answer to the question is, like, okay. people can do it. You just have to be willing to accept some of the lumps, and it's like a short-term versus long-term. Charlotte's actually doing something like that now. It's actually, um, I know they're not tanking, but for the first time in years, and they didn't handle it well, like they should have traded Kemba. But, like, for the first time in years, they weren't, 
and I and I keep I keep adding caveats. And the Rogier deal was obviously bad, but for the first time in deal in years, they seem willing to embrace the rebuild, and they're focusing on development, and you know, you're playing young guys and things like that. Um, no, I agree with you. I think I mean the answer. I don't know. Some teams are dumb. Like teams are just silly and short-sighted. Like you know, I joke. I'm here. The Knicks have. Um, you know they've lost for 25 years without doing so on purpose right like it's it's you know it's you can do and i never and i grew up in new york and i always thought excuse me and i always thought the idea that you can't rebuild in new york was nonsense right like i see it i saw it with sixers fans when i'm around them now when i was around a little more this year right or the past couple of years i should say um, i've seen it right. with knicks fans who i grew up around and like seeing them and like falling in love with the random second round point guard who scores like 12 points in three straight games. So you think like that, that but I think every fan base does yeah. that, right? Like people love that guy. Um, you know, it's so, yeah, I think that's fall. I think if you do that, like, yeah, maybe not four years, but I think people buy into this stuff um, and are willing to, if they see there's a plan, that's, I think a big part. Like if they recognize there's a plan and they see, you think they think you're being upfront and yeah, you'll take your lumps from, you know, whether it's older members of the media older fan bases, etc. But uh but I think the idea that you can't rebuild any market is just ludicrous. Like you can. It, it doesn't mean you know, again, you maybe don't go as you don't have to go as far as the Sixers. Like you can sign a couple of veterans who make your team not pathetic, you know. You can win twenty two games instead of fourteen, right? But um but no I yeah, think any right, teams right. can. I think and and about your fa- like your friends. So if the Detroit Pistons, you know, drafted Zion whatever one year and then were in the finals, like four years later they wouldn't be on board. Of course they would be on board. Like the money would follow. Um, and so as much as like, you know, I, I take, I take a few knocks on the Sixers. Like they recognize that part as well. Right. They use those years to even reset from like a business side of things and make sure that they're ready to take off. And like now, I mean, I poke fun at it. Cause like they have like, what do they call it? The hub. Um, they, they have like their investment hub or whatever the hell they call it. I forget what it's called now. Do you know what I'm talking about? They have like a incubator. The Sixers have like a incubator where like they take like startups. They do all this weird stuff. Yeah, here you go. The a, Sixers innovation lab. Like they have all this stuff where it's like, okay, but nobody actually cares about any of the things you guys do other than play. Like it, it's all works because your basketball team is good. But like they did some different stuff and they made it like they built up a real brand, right? And I think, you know, maybe not everyone has that in them, but no, I think you can do it. I really hope I really hope that like more teams will actually realize that they can do it because it clear it like as you mentioned uh your own it, it just it, it's definitely it, it takes lumps you're gonna have to kind of go through lumps and you're gonna have to kind of hope that you know that it, that it pays off for you is definitely a risk but the way philadelphia worked it and and uh and, and even other teams i mean san antonio kind of lucked into tim duncan just because i mean if it wasn't mm-hmm. for the injuries they wouldn't have been that bad that year but you know, like there are teams out there that, that like it works. So I really hope that other teams can realize that it does. You just have to play it smart, play it strate- uh, strategically. Um, so, Yaron, man, I really want to thank you so much for for taking time out of your day and coming on with us, talking about your book. Um, for the people who who haven't read this book yet, called Tanking to the Top, Yaron, uh, you can, can check it. it out if you look at my Twitter feed. Right, I have all the links, but you know, it's basically available where all books are sold. So if that means. You know, now you want to do the ebook because you don't want to leave your house. It's available there. You can listen to the audio book, which was um, features my lovely voice reading off the pages. Um, Amazon, all those other places. Obviously, if you know local oh. bookstore, if you can maybe one that delivers, do that. Support them. But yeah, it's where all books are sold. If you're listening to this podcast, um, 
I know I'm a biased uh, a biased critic, but I do think you will uh, enjoy and appreciate the book. I can truly say that. Well, I, I, I will tell you right now, any Sixers fan will definitely love and enjoy this book. Like, like I, I will definitely support <laughs> that because I just, I told you, I, I just finished it um, really yesterday. I forgot to take it with me on, on my uh, my trip to LA at the beginning of March. I wanted to bring it with me and read it on the flight, um, <laughs> but just I, I left it, I, I left it in my in my drawer. Like I, as I'm trying to leave, for ah, I still got the sale, like, so I'm good. No, stuff. So. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thank you, Yaron, Thank man. We really appreciate it. Me. I know I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it.